Hello and welcome to the latest interview from Leading the Line. This time we speak to Chris Dealey, football writer for 90minute.com and author of the book Forgotten Nations, focusing on the world of Kanifa. We also talked about his experiences at the Women's World Cup and uh, yeah, we both made a prediction that was wrong and uh, is now the case. You'll, I'll leave you to find, find that one. But before we got into that, I thought it'd be good to get Chris to introduce himself. Yeah, so I, I spent um, I spent last summer this no <laughs> um, I spent this summer at the the Women's World Cup um, with a website called Ninety Men um, covering well mostly following England and the USA around because um, well you know partly you follow the story but obviously kind of follow the the English language uh, markets um, had a great time out there and I've also written a book. Called, uh, called Forgotten Nations about non-FIFA football, uh, more specifically, kind of the places and the people who who are involved in that uh, through the lens of the football teams. So, uh, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the time it's um, it's the off-pitch stuff as well as much as the on-pitch stuff that um, you know, kind of, I think is, is the really interesting stuff about football. Yeah, and um, that's that's. The two topics we're going to speak to you about today, um, obviously leading the line, we were always looking for a, an angle in women's football, but we're also going to talk about Forgotten Nations, um, which is which was one of my travel reads as I was uh, over in France for the World Cup. But before we get to the book, um, as I said, we wouldn't be leading the line without talking about women's football, and you've mentioned you were following uh, both England and the USA in this summer's World Cup. Let's keep it simple. Um, how was your World Cup experience, Chris? Um, wild, yeah. Um, I turned up a couple of days late for uh, reasons that I think we'll get to in a little bit, but um, yeah, it was incredible. Like the, um, it was my first my first tournament as a as a journalist. Um, certainly the first time being being out there for the whole time, um, and just the atmosphere around the around the games, the atmosphere. Um, I know it's a, kind of a little bit inside baseball, but like the atmosphere in the the kind of the journalist group was was fantastic everyone um was all kind of pulling in the same direction everyone was you know everyone was there because they were interested in watching and supporting and writing about women's football which is um is, is not an atmosphere you get everyone who was there wanted to be there really really wanted to be there uh the players uh the players the teams were, were all fantastic in terms of um you know, coming and talking, that everyone was so open, and the fans, especially the American fans, the American fans travelled so so deep. Um, yeah, any any time you went to uh, went to a, a USA game, it, it, the, you might as well have just been somewhere in the Midwest. Uh, they, they, they were just everywhere. You couldn't walk without hearing uh, USA chants. Um, and then again, look, obviously the football is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, you're spot on about the USA chance. I was obviously there primor- uh, primarily to, to watch Scotland, but I did go to USA Chile at the part of the France, and uh, they were, as you say, everywhere, and they were everywhere basically throughout the tournament. So um, it's a, a real testament to the, their support, especially when you consider how far they, they've travelled. But let's let's continue on the USA theme, actually, Chris, because I think it's probably fair to say probably one of the most talked about games of the tournament were USA's 13-0 win against Thailand. Um what was what was it like to cover that, and of course all the things that came after? I think it probably prompted the most discussions in the tournament, maybe outside of the rule changes. Yeah, it was um, it it was absolutely bizarre. So that was I'd only got into the country that afternoon, um, went straight to Rems for the game, and 
kind of, you know, you're there. You, I was sat between a couple of Thai journalists uh, in the press box. And, yeah, you, it's like 3 0 at half time. Thailand have put in a reasonably good show, but it, it's pretty clear that the USA are just going to pump balls into the box and the keeper's too small to deal with it. Um, and, you know, it, it's fairly easy at that point. You're just like, right, okay, well, this is this is the game. I can basically write my piece now with an hour left, you know, 45 minutes and half time left. Um, jobs are good and let's, let's, let's get out of here early and have an early night. Um, and then they came out and... Uh, and and just just obviously just blew away Thailand in the second half. I've never seen anything even remotely like it. Um, it was it was a little uncomfortable. Um, again, partly because <laughs> partly because I was sat between two Thai journalists who were, who were really beginning not to have such a great time, and partly because yeah, the, you know the fans and the players are are, are celebrating this, and you can see the Thai players' heads dropping again and again and again. And and it, it just, it felt like somewhere I didn't particularly want to be. Um, now, um, went down to the went down to the mix zone just before full time, because it's like, oh, look, nothing's going to change here. Um, missed a goal in like the <laughs> minute or so. <laughs> Um, that it took me to get down there, and yeah, you know, you're talking to the players afterwards, and they're, you know, super hyped up. Um, while the Thai players are just like filing through behind them with their, their you know, heads bound and about and nobody talking to them. Um, there was a lot, a lot of talk about celebrations. Obviously, it look it felt uncomfortable. But I don't, I don't necessarily judge the the USA players for doing it. You're, you're at a World Cup. You're you know, this is the pinnacle, and especially for the USA, they are—they're winners. They're ruthless. It, it's what that team is. It's why that team's so successful. Um, I was talking to um, Ali Riley, uh, the New Zealand captain, was one of our columnists for 90 Min over the over, over the tournament. I was talking to her uh, after the game. I think we, we certainly after talking to her, the, the point that I came to was I I don't. Uh, I don't judge the USA players for doing it, but they had a chance to do. They had a chance to show a bit of class, but didn't. Um, yeah, you, you, they could have gone up in my estimation. They just kind of stayed the same, which you know, it's, it, look, it's not a judgment thing, but it was it was just an incredibly weird situation. I've never been in anything like it, and I kind of hope never to be in anything like it again because I still, you know, it's, we're like a, what, a month on or something, uh, more than that, and I, I still don't know how I feel about it. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it was even a, a, a spectacle to watch on the telly. Um, it was one of the earliest games in the tournament, so I hadn't quite gone out by that point. And um, yeah, as you say, it was it's quite hard to take in. And I think your point about the celebrations is right. I think they have the right to do that. But I can also understand why some people maybe didn't didn't particularly take to that too much. Um, what I'm curious at, Chris, because you were there covering it, and as you mentioned, you were sitting in between the Thailand uh, journalists. How did the American press react to it in terms of that, that 13 result? There was a lot of talk about how the players reacted to it and how they dealt with it uh, post-match. How, how did the American media cover it? So, the American media who were out there, um, yeah, look, these are people who are um, more embedded in women's football in the US than than the majority of English journalists who are out there just by virtue of um, just by virtue of the, the way that the game is covered in the States. 
um, you know, there's more resources, there's more coverage. Um, you know, look, there's not a, there's a lot of English journalists who do absolutely fantastic work with WSL and with the England team, but the the, the breadth of the US journalists who were there, who who are um, very invested in that team, um, everyone seemed, or the, the the vast majority of people there seemed entirely on board with. Uh, with everything the, the the team were doing, you know, there was a there was a feeling I think not quite of cheerleading the team because um, you know they, they they'll be critical when when critical needs to be, but they were very much on board with the mindset, on board with the philosophy. Um, so yeah, they they, they were they were up for it uh, by and large. <laughs> Yeah, and and I think I think that's maybe something you talked about the kind of community aspect of covering women's football, and I think that comes across me especially when you talked about the, the kind of almost not quite cheerleading aspect of it. And um, I think as anybody who covers women's football, you're you're very much pro everything that happens, and it's quite hard to sometimes cast a critical eye. So that was an interesting insight because I, I did wonder about that as I was watching watching obviously the scenes after the game. But we're going to talk about Kanifa shortly, um, and given. Thailand were probably this, one of the smallest nations at the World Cup in terms of stature. Uh, there was also four other debutants, including Scotland. Um, still not quite got over that Argentina result. Um, there was a lot of talk, obviously, after the tournament about expanding the World Cup. And I wondered, uh, given, obviously, what you saw with the USA-Thailand game and given some of the experiences you've had looking at developing nations, what's your thoughts on the idea of growing the Women's World Cup just now to make it... Make, I think it's been from 24 to 32 teams is getting mooted at the moment. Do you think that's... Yeah a good step or do you think maybe it's a, a running before a walking situation? Um, <laughs> it's, it's a complicated situation. Uh, obviously my personal view on it is that I don't think the, I don't think the 2023 world cup is the right time to expand to, uh, to expand to 32 teams. I think uh, eight years from now, I think uh, I think is a, is a probably a more realistic time frame to um, to make sure that the, the teams who are there look. Thailand are a bit of a special case because if if um, Asian qualifying wasn't a little bit wacky already, they probably wouldn't have been at the tournament. But um, but the the matter is always investment, and if FIFA can make sure that all of the 32 teams and you know all, all the, the the teams playing and qualifying are properly funded and properly trained and and you know brought up to that level because that's what we've seen at this world cup is is the not necessarily the raising of the level at the at the very very top but the raising of the kind of second tier uh there were so many competitive teams uh, um and so many teams who had you know a couple of standout players who um with the investment in in uh, in women's football in in their respective countries by their respective federations, that brings the level up. It, that needs to happen in a more widespread way than it, than it is now. There needs to be time for those countries to develop their women's football programs um, before they're just kind of thrown into the World Cup. Because you know something like that, if you're thrown into a World Cup and you're not ready, it can be damaging. And if you're if if you've got a an FA who are already kind of on the fence about you know they're looking for an excuse not to fund the women's football. Um, then that kind of thing can can be can be an excuse to just go, yeah, well, you know what, well, look how badly that went, sack it off. Um, and that's what FIFA, I think, need to do a better job of. Um, and I, this is a, a 
pretty widespread view. Of course, the FIFA need to do a better job of mandating uh, mandating investment into women's football and not just saying, well, you've got to have this money earmarked, but actually make sure it gets there because that's what happens a lot of the time is that this money's earmarked for women's football and it just kind of never turns up. Um, so, yeah, I, I think 2023 may be, may be a, little, a little premature. I think it, it smacks of um, a kind of populist move this World Cup's gone really well, so let's have more of it. Um, but the the foundations really need to be there first. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree. And you said the word populist there, and as you were talking, the word populism came into my head as well. And I think you're right. I think four years is is too quick. And I think it also a big part of it, depending where it's where it's played. I think one of the benefits France had was that it was close to a lot of countries, so you had a lot of transient fans who could could make their way there fairly easily. So I know that Australia seems to be in the, the pole position for 2023 at the moment. It'll be interesting to see what happens with that. But we're also here to talk about your book, Chris, uh, Forgotten Nations. Um, as I said at the start of the podcast, it was my companion on my flights to and from France this summer. Do you want to give a, a brief summary of what it's all about before we get into some of the some of the topics within it? Uh, yeah, sure. So it's it's... Um, it largely follows uh, or, or covers uh, CANIFA, which is um, the Confederation of Independent Football Associations. It's basically FIFA for teams that can't make it into FIFA. Now, whether that's because um, their teams of, or kind of representative teams of displaced peoples or breakaway states, kind of self-governing de facto nations that aren't um, widely recognised as uh, as nations. Um, you know, whatever the reason they can't make it into uh, into FIFA, in, in a in one case, the country is is one of I think three to five UN nations that aren't in FIFA. Uh, it's it's Tuvalu, and it's essentially because they they can't they don't have the hotels and the and the um, and the capacity to to host travelling teams and fans. Um, if they were in FIFA, of course, the the investment that they'd get would mean that they could do that, but they can't make it into FIFA, so they can't. It's um, a bit of a vicious cycle there. But, um, yeah, so, so for whatever reason, these are these are representative teams of, um, you know, ethnic groups or, or breakaway states or, or, or whatever it is who can't make it into FIFA. It's really the stories of, um, you know, the, those places, whether it's, um, you know, the, the, the history of the place, how they came to... Um, be in a position where they have their their own representative team um and and the stories of uh, some of the people playing for those teams because you know it's, it's like anything the the further you dig down the pyramid the, the the more extraordinary the stories you get a lot of the time yeah and i think that was one of the things that really attracted me to the book in the first instance was the fact that it wasn't just a case of these are the countries this is what they've achieved it was more about how they got to this point and the stories behind it. Um, Kanifa has always been a bit of a, a long-term curiosity of mine. Uh, we've obviously had some heightened coverage in the UK um, last year, thanks to the Kanifa World Cup being held in London. I think there's something you can take away from every chapter, but obviously don't want to spoil the entire book for everybody. So I just wanted to focus on a few. Um, and the first one is Tuvalu, who you've just mentioned. Um, it's fair to say, Chris, I've never been so intrigued by the word sea level before uh, when reading a, fo- a football book. Um <laughs> It's something that I thought was quite a surprising read. Did you, do you want to maybe expand on the Tuvalu story a little bit? Yeah, so Tuvalu, it's a, it's a Pacific Island nation. It's made up of um, a lot of little, uh, lot of little atolls in the in the Pacific Ocean. It, it's hundreds and thousands of miles away from 
more or less absolutely everything. Um, and they're, you know, they're, they're uh, the, the actual land area they've got is, is the size of like, probably a, a London borough or small, well, def- smaller than a London borough. It, it's tiny. They, they've got basically one place on the island that's wide enough for a, for a football pitch that, that they can actually have a football pitch on it. It's, it's their entire multi-sports uh, I use the word stadium in inverted commas. Um, you know, their, their footballing uh, facilities are such that the team train on the uh, on, on the runway of the one airport they've got, um, but they can't uh, they can't train on that all the time because a lot of the time the tides will rise up through the ground and flood it. Um, yeah, it's a perfect place for football, really. I don't know why. Uh, I don't know why they aren't in the World Cup now. Um, yeah, no. So, so uh, yeah, no. Two Blue is um, is one of the one of the, the the more interesting. I think one of the more interesting um, places on Earth for, for the foreseeable, not because of what they uh, necessarily are now, but what they represent going forward within the next 30 to 50 years there's a very good chance that um that the islands are more or less uninhabitable i think the the highest point on the islands is about four meters above sea level as things stand um obviously rising sea levels uh, make that an issue there's also the fact that you know you're in the pacific ocean i know it's, it's theoretically the calm one but there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of largish storms there there was one, I think, one typhoon or a cyclone about five or six years ago, I think it might have been. Um, it was best part of a thousand miles away where, where it actually made landfall. Uh, but the the tides that it caused and the, the kind of residual rains that it carried across the ocean uh, displaced about 50% of Tuflis' entire population. You know, that's a storm from a thousand miles away. If one storm um you know if one bad storm comes through that place you you're looking at the prospect of a more or less a civilization entirely lost yeah and i think it makes it it makes the you talked about the fifa funding part of it and the fact that they need hotels and things like that and they obviously can't build them it it makes it kind of adds a sense of humanity to football which i think is a, a running theme throughout throughout the book Chris um, and I think it's something that needs to be commended because it's very easy to look at these as kind of novelty stories but I think as you've talked through some of the chapters which we're, we're going to talk about just now that they've come to the fore um, another story in it is uh, the story of and this is where I started to have to get Google soundboard out to make sure I was pronouncing these right <laughs> <laughs> was uh, the chapter that followed it about the 2018 champions uh, Carpathia um, I think this one brought to the fore one of the topics that I think you are quite right to bring up throughout the, the idea of the book, which is political neutrality within Kanifa. Would you like to maybe give a bit more about the Carpathia story and then maybe share a bit more about your take on the concept of the, the non-political mantra that, that runs through through Kanifa and throughout the book? Yeah, so um, Carpathia or, or Carpathia, they're, they're the, uh, the reigning, theoretically reigning uh, Kanifa World Football Champions. They won... In London, they came in as a uh, they came in as a as a kind of last minute sub, and ended up winning the entire tournament, um, which is you know great for them. Except it kind of uh, wasn't. Uh, so, Kapitalia is a, a Hungarian kind of a Hungarian enclave in uh, in Ukraine. Um, 
there are, there are um, as you kind of go into Kniff and kind of dig into it, there are basically teams of Hungarians absolutely everywhere. Um, it, it's, it's one of the kind of, you know, one of the little oddities that, that, that you kind of pick up. But um, obviously, Hungary is um, politically a little tense as things stand. Um, they... Uh, Prime Minister, President's trying to uh, fight with more or less everyone. Um, Ukraine, incredibly nervous uh, and standoffish about potential incursions onto their territory because, uh, again, as you see uh, across Kanifa, there's a lot of, you know, just areas of, of Ukraine that have begun to self-declare independence, like uh, Donetsk and Luhansk, um, often mildly Russian back certainly they're not a fan of, of the idea which they've had to deal with relatively regularly they're not a fan of the idea of, of foreign uh, foreign influence um, dictating independence movements or, or separatist movements uh, which meant that when Capitalia won the World Football Cup they got a uh, there was a strongly very strongly worded uh, Postpart the next day by the by the Ukraine sports minister. Um, e, um, let's see if I can get this right. Uh, Igor Zhdanov, who basically said these people are against Ukraine. This is this is a team that's not in Ukraine's interests. This is an act of I believe it was called sporting separatism. Um, the entire team was uh, banned from re-entering the country. Um, now, most of them don't live in Ukraine, most of them live in Hungary, but, um, you know, they've, they've, they've still, they still have family in Capitalia, they still have, um, uh, they still have uh, relatives, uh, often relatives buried there. Um, and as things kind of rumbled on over the next few months, and this was something that was an absolute nightmare when I was writing the book, because I was having to uh, find and translate kind of Ukrainian news reports um day by day because uh, for the for the organizer of the team the guy who kind of put the team together a man by the name of Tibor Fish um he was eventually accused of um uh, high treason by Ukrainian authorities he is uh, the last I heard was hiding in Budapest um, I'm assuming no Ukrainian secret service are currently listening to this podcast. But um, <laughs> yeah, the the last 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 time we was hiding in Budapest, um, Interpol are, are, are I've been told involved. Um, so you have this situation where a guy who, um, you know, by by all accounts, by all from all the people, um. I've spoken to in Kanifa who who have been in contact with him and, uh, and in some cases still in contact with him. Um, this isn't a man with a separatist agenda. This is a man who wanted his his region, his kind of background, his his um, you know the specific cultural background because that that is when you have a, a large um, community of, of one ethnic or national background living in living in another country. Um, you have that. You have that community. You have that heritage that a lot of the time you want to represent. That's that was the idea of the Capitale team. It's 
blown wildly beyond um, you know what what that ever was intended to be. And, and as I say he's he's now wanted for for high treason in Ukraine. Um, but it, it brings back the idea of Kanifa has always insisted it's a politically neutral organisation, which is, I think, a, a statement that comes with um, a number of asterisks uh, and, and some quite big ones. So Kanifa will not disqualify any members based on um, political affiliations. Um, now, political gestures are banned at, you know, at Kanifa for matches, Kanifa for events. You know, you can't, if you had some, um, you know, massively far right team playing, you, you know, you wouldn't have them saluting before a game. That would be, that would be, you know, political expression and, and, and not fair game as far as Kanifa are concerned. But if you keep it to the football and if you keep it to representing, you know, your region, culture, whatever it is, then fair game. Uh, the, the phrase that I think is used a lot by Kanifa is, um, you know, FIFA tells you who you are, we ask you who you are. Um, which, is, which is a lovely line, but it leads to things like this, where you kind of, you say you're politically neutral, but that's kind of hard to swallow when the the act of existence is in a lot of ways just just the, the simple act of existence is political um you know the fact that this team exists whether or not you know whether or not um they do you know they have which flag they have on the on the on the shirt what what they do and say when they're representing the team the fact that the team exists in itself is or could be taken as a political statement you have the same uh, in a lot of ways the the padania team in italy have been um have been a bit of a flashpoint for this in the past um it's one of those things that kind of can for can for a a relatively young organization they were founded um you know they were founded in this decade they haven't had to deal with um a, a lot of high high drama really historically now when you come to this capitalist thing it, it, it becomes unavoidable in a lot of ways that the your organization has um has political bearings whether whether you you know whether you ban outright political expression or not existence is political expression um it's not something that there's a that there's a quick and easy fix to because once you start imposing rules on who can and can't join you know you, you start to um you start to get into an incredibly complicated quagmire um that i wouldn't want to deal with but you know when your members are when some of your members are being are being wanted for treason you're complicit in that by the fact that you've allowed that team to you know invited that team to come and play in your competition and the fact that they've played in that competition is what's brought them to the attention of the ukrainian authorities um you're complicit in in what's happening to them and you know you're you're in some ways responsible for um for dealing with that and for making sure um you know putting safeguards in place to make sure that kind of thing doesn't happen in the future
yeah, I think it's like with Kanifa holistically, it's a really it's a good idea. But as you say, the more you enable things like this and make a a platform for these kind of nations and ethnic ethnic backgrounds and uh, groups of communities to to kind of showcase themselves, it does start to open that Pandora's box a little bit in terms of the yeah. the concept of the the political processes behind it. And tell you what, let's let's go into another example of this. And this was this was brand new to brand new to me completely, Chris. So thank you very much for highlighting it. Um, the biggest revelation was uh, about the Chagos Islands, and I consider myself very much a a man of the football world. I will read absolutely anything about football, um, but the story of the Chagosians, um, that really struck me as something that kind of blew my mind a little bit. Can you give a little bit more context about that one? And again, this comes into the theme of something that maybe wouldn't have been heightened if it wasn't for Kanifa. And then there's obviously all the politicalness that, that's behind that as a result. Yeah, so this is uh, the Chagos Islands. It's, a, it's, a, it's an island group, um, an island group in the Indian Ocean, nearish the Maldives, but not especially. Um, that had um, yeah, a few thousand, um, a few thousand people living there. They've been living there for um, probably about 150 years until the United Kingdom came to um, came to the islands. They'd come to the islands before, but specifically came to the islands between probably about 67 and, and 73, 74 to forcibly evict every single person there uh every single native chagosian was uh, was removed um some kind of offered to leave many of them basically forced onto ships and kind of dumped in the maldives um their islands were then sold to uh, or sorry rented to the united states to use as a naval base for the next uh, 50 years essentially in exchange for a discount on a nuclear program um obviously that's not great that's there's there's a there's a there's a lot to unpack there yeah um none of it reflects well on uh on the united kingdom that's not new we did a lot of um reasonably unpleasant things uh when expanding and, and trying to maintain the empire um historically we are uh, very much the bad guys that's that's something that um kind of keeps coming up in uh, throughout the book is 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 one of the things you kind of go through it's like yeah everything was fine and then britain yeah that was us um <laughs> but i think what, what the thing that 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 really strike is really striking about chagos islands is that this wasn't you know this wasn't in the 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 1800s and the the, the very early 20th century this wasn't that kind of colonial expansion era this was this was in the 1960s and 70s. You know, these these there are people living now in this country who were evicted from the Chagos Islands. Remember, they remember their home. They remember living there, um, and they aren't allowed, and they aren't being allowed to return. Um, there's there's been incredibly long-running court battles, which go through process of uh, appeal after appeal, basically batting back and forth. No, you can't go back. Yes, you can go back. Um, the International Court of Justice has um, ruled that the UK is um, obligated to end its kind of control over the um, Chagos Islands as, as, as quickly as possible. 
um, the UN, I believe, um, the same or, or similar. Um, but as things stand, the, the US still have a naval base there. The the 50 year rent ran up quite recently, but they're still there. Um, the things that have been done, the things that were done to, to remove the people, to remove Chagossians from the islands were um, inhumane. The things that are done to them now that, the, so a lot of the Chagossians have settled in, in, in Mauritius. There is a, there's also a reasonably sized, relatively, uh, Chagossian community in London, largely in South London. Um mostly from uh, Diego Garcia, the main the main island there. Um, and these people have, uh, a lot of these people have British citizenship, uh, which extends two generations. And then people are being told, no, you can't, you can't stay here. So a lot of the, um, as much, uh, it, it, it's kind of become a bit of a, um, hot bottom topic around the around the Windrush um, deportations. A lot of Chagosians being um, uh, finding that, that they're around the same kind of around the same kind of time of entry um, that they're being told yeah we know we kind of force you out of your homes um, literally force you out of your homes but you're kind of we don't want to be responsible for you because you're not, you know, you're not from here. That's not your fault. Um, but also get out and we don't want your children to stay here. Um, deal with it. Um, look, from, from start to finish um, and, and indeed ongoing now, the, the United Kingdom's acted um, typically reprehensibly towards um, towards people from the Chagos Islands. Uh, at every single step, they've tried to uh, try to manoeuvre so that they get the the maximum uh, the maximum benefit with the with the least uh, with the least responsibility. Um, there are some fantastic uh, um, uh, charity and and um, aid organisations working uh, in the UK with the Chagos Islands. If you, if you look them up, there's, there's ways to support them. I, I highly recommend it because a, a legal battle like this isn't um isn't easy or straightforward in any way shape or form um but for now that they're, they're, they're again this is this is uh, a, a group of people without a home um and the football team kind of gives them not not a home but it, there's there's i think the 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 most one of the most important things you can do when you have uh, one of the most important things you can do when something like this is taken away from you, when when you know an ident a part of your identity as large as your literal home is taken away from you, uh, it's very important to to keep that um, that sense of representation, that sense of identity, um, and having a having a, a national football team is you know is, is a fairly big part in that. Um, it gives you something to something to look at, something to rally around, something to go. This is us. We still exist, um, and yeah. So, Chagos Islands, welcome to Canifa. <laughs> yeah. Um, as I said, when when I read the chapter, the more I read it, the more I was kind of going, I can't believe this is something that's happening. Uh, if, I, if I'm being totally honest, but 
I also think it's a very interesting juxtaposition when you think about the time we're living in in the UK just now. Obviously, Brexit's big chat at the time of recording. I'm pretty sure it'll still be big chat by the time you get around to listening to this. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's just an interesting one, and I'll maybe link in with you afterwards. Chris, and we can get a wee link shared onto the podcast uh, for anything like that as well. But, as I said, the, the good thing about the, the story of Kanifa is they do highlight some, some nice stories behind it as well, and I think probably... One of the highlights of the book is the story of you going in search of Enoch Burwa. Now, I'll let you decide if you want to reveal exactly who that is, but it's certainly one of my favourites. Um, do you want to share a wee bit more about him and Padania, who you have referenced before, and how they are probably potentially could be one of the, the biggest nations Kenifa have in their hands at the moment? Sure. Um, so Padania um, is a, a region of the kind of Po Valley in, in northern Italy. Um, it's, it's one of the ones that's it's been a, a little complicated for for Kanifa, um, uh, uh, kind of visually in the past because the the idea of Padania wasn't necessarily created but it was popularised in the uh, kind of 60s and 70s by the Lega Nord, the the far right Italian party. Um, that the, the you know the idea of, of northern Italy where you know there wasn't full of south like the migrant uh, sorry um wasn't full of migrants like the south um this kind of semi-separatist movement that never really got anywhere but it kind of became um padania kind of became a platonic ideal for um certain elements of the of the far right um that's not what the team is now uh, they're, they're incredibly incredibly clear that they want to represent their region they they don't have um, political aspirations. They have no um, links with uh, the Lega um, and such and such. So um, I went to I went to Northern Italy um, not long before I finished the book um, to go and meet up with um, the only non-white player I think I certainly I've seen uh, ever representing Padania in. Um, you know, in a reasonable amount of time watching them since that, since they've been part of Kanifa. Um, as you say, Enoch Broat, who is uh, probably better known as Enoch Balotelli, uh, Mario Balotelli's brother, um, you know, formerly of, of Italy, Liverpool, Manchester City, and the rest of it. Um, Enoch plays for a Serie D club. He's, well, he actually plays for a different Serie D club every season at the moment, it, it kind of feels like. Um, he is charitably he tries um but he, he plays football more or less because he because he enjoys playing football he he um you know he, he doesn't really have to do a great deal he's Mario Balotelli's brother um so I, I ended up down in uh down in Pavia which is about a, an hour south of uh, an hour south of Milan um and I went down to find him to talk about um why he stopped playing for, for the national team because I'd heard um, some rumours about the, the kind of background of Padania rearing its head. Um, yeah, I just wanted, wanted to wanted to ask him if it was true. And wanted to you know find out what it's like to um, to play for a team like that when and you know to, and to play football when when your brother is literally Mario Balotelli. Um, he, he he did say that you know when people when he when he st- when he said that he wanted to play for for Padania they they actually put an advert out in the paper for him 
um, that said, hey, um, we know that you can play for us. Come play for us. Um, they said, people people like, you're mad. You're a black guy coming to play for, for Daniel. What are you doing? Um, but everyone everyone around the camp convinced him, you know, look, that's not what we are. That's not who we are. We just want to play football. Um, I said, he, generally speaking, I had a good time. Um, there was never a... Um, a racist incident with, with him in the squad, with him in the coaches. Um, I think the exact phrase he used was, you would have been able to tell if there was because I would have killed them. Um, which seems fairly cut and dry to me. Um, you can tell he's yeah. his brother's brother. This is probably something he, that I would tell him. He is incredibly his brother's brother. Um, look, and, and he is basically a, 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 a nice... Um, and I, he's he's incredibly his brother. He he, without wishing to be patronising, he he uh, comes across quite a lot as, as as a bit of a basically just a big kid. You know, when we were, I talked to him after after they finished training, and he was there just absolutely powering down a pack of little gummy sweets uh, while we were chatting with energy drinks. Um, when we drove back to the uh, we drove back to the station afterwards, and he was. Um, doing like five or six takes for his uh, for his Instagram story. Um, he wasn't driving, I should say. His mate was driving. Um, you know, he FaceTimed Mario just to just just out of this kind of like, hey, look, this, this guy came to interview me. How cool is this? Um, he, he's he's basically a big kid, and it's incredibly endearing. Um, yeah, he, he doesn't play for the team anymore, but um, uh, but the, the, you know the they're certainly open to, to having him back. Uh, I doubt he'll go out to the World Football Cup next summer because it's in uh, uh, Somaliland, which is, um, I, would, I wouldn't say it's, it's top of the tourist hotspot uh, list. Yeah, so it's definitely one of the, the, the standard stories. There's lots of other chapters to, to discuss in there. You've got Cascadia and Tibet as well, who are mentioned quite frequently. But I think also uh, one interesting about Kenneth is it's always looking to grow. Um, there's a chapter about the newbie, so Jersey, Kernel, or a Cornwall if you prefer, and Sardinia have all mentioned as well. But as I've said before, Chris, uh, leading the line, we're always looking for a women's football angle. And at the end of the book, you talk about Kenneth and women's football. Um, at the time of recording, they've just appointed Kelly Lindsay as the director of women's football and announced the strategy. How ex- successful do you think a, a female version of the Kenneth World Cup could be? Um. I think there really is scope for it. It's um, it, it's one of those things. That, look, it, it's not like FIFA. We have to kind of fight for the funding because uh, you know, Kenneth is an entirely voluntary organisation. You you've not really got funding for 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 the men's or women's teams. Um, I think Kelly's if if there's a person to to really drive it forward, Kelly is he's absolutely that person. Um, for those who aren't aware of her, she's um, she she used to play for the US women's team a um, couple of games but she's been probably best known as the coach of the Afghanistan women's national team um, who have been involved in in several quite high profile fights about you know um, uh, abuse within their within the setup Kelly's Kelly's very much been driving the the positive side the reform of that forward um, you know coaching these players often from afar um, she very much um she's one of the most driven um driven 
brave exponents of uh, proponents proponents of of women's football globally, uh, and the idea of, of women's football being played anywhere that it can be played, um, certainly that I know. Um, I think if, if look if there's a person to do it, she's uh, she's absolutely the person to lead it up. But, and, and when it comes to you know when it comes to to getting these teams together, um, there's absolutely no reason why why a um, why say a Kanifa women's um, World Football Cup shouldn't work. Look, this is about this is about places getting representation. You don't have to be, you know, you don't have to have a vast national setup. You just have to have, you know, eighteen women who want to play football and want to represent their region. Um, I think, um, in terms of scale, I think starting small is is going to be necessary because, you know. You, you need to find the the volunteer coaches. You need to find those eighteen players. Uh, you know, you, you, it takes some time to lay the groundwork. But the kind of people who um, support Kanifa locally and globally, so so people with uh, people who want to represent their region, people who want to support their region, people who want to support their 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 um, heritage, uh, and also people who want to see the game played. Everywhere in the world, people who um, people I think like you and I who who are fascinated by the stories of these uh, of, of the people and the places and, and think that you know the, the the more essentially the more of that the better. Uh, I think the the two uh, the the two groups of people who have an interest in the teams existing, uh, you know, they they both they both translate very well. Uh, yeah, so I, I think that there's no reason Kanifa for women's World Football Cup wouldn't be uh, wouldn't be successful down the line. When when that happens again, Kanifa is a volunteer organisation, so it's um, there's a there's a lot of time and effort that has to go into setting up something like this. I know um, I know the trouble they had in in Artsakh for the Euros for the men's Euros this summer. Um, I was out there for that, and it was it was a fantastic tournament. But but a lot of the stuff that went on behind the scenes was um, was incredibly troubling and, uh, and quite difficult. Um, but look, where, where there's a will, there's a way, and, and certainly when you've got someone like Kelly on board, there's there's absolutely a will. Yeah, and I think I think what'll be really interesting with the the idea the idea behind Kenefa and marrying that with women's football is I think some of the stories we've talked about over the course of this podcast and that are covered in the book I think they'll get <clears throat> amplified even even more uh, in a women's football way and so I think it's a very positive step they've, I think they've played the first international now uh, in that regard so it'll be interesting to see how that progresses but you mentioned the uh, Kelly's involvement with the Afghan uh, women's national team go have a wee look about that it's a uh, Quite a, quite a forthright read, I think is probably a good way of putting it uh, without putting any spoilers in terms of the, the context behind it. But please go, ha- go have a wee explore about that as well. But yeah, Forgotten Nations, um, out now. Let's, let's do the shelling now, Chris. So it's out now. Um, I'm assuming you can just get it in all the usual uh, book channels. Yeah, yeah. Um, Amazon, Waterstones, Foils, Smiths. It's, it's, in, it's in a good number of shops, but... Um, it's on all the websites if it's not. So, yeah, check it out. Um, there's all the links on my uh, my Twitter at that Chris 1209. 
Um, yeah, plug it every now and again. It's almost like I spend some time writing it or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and as you say, you can follow Chris at that Chris twelve oh nine. Thank you very much for joining me, Chris. Um, really interesting conversation. Go buy the book, um, and we'll speak to you again soon. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you once again to Chris for taking the time to speak to me about his book, Forgotten Nations. Please go buy it. And I'm not saying that just because we've done the interview, but because it is actually a really interesting book. And Kanifa itself is a really interesting project. Um, I'll put a link to it in in the description below. But for now, thank you very much for listening. And I'll speak to you again soon. Bye bye now.